Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another episode in our series about famous people during times of war or... Star Wars. This is the second to last episode in the current incarnation of our Star Wars series, and it's about John Wayne, the movie star who, more than any other, became identified with a kind of fantasy of American strength that united an otherwise deeply divided nation and propelled victory in World War II. This strength curdled into paranoid hubris following the war, and Wayne was an avatar of that too, serving as president of the organization that set into motion the commie-hunting blacklist. But today we're going to focus primarily on how John Wayne became one of the biggest stars of the war era, and why, unlike many other actors, as well as his close collaborator John Ford, Wayne conspicuously didn't enlist. Join us won't you, for the story of why John Wayne didn't go. Born Marion Morrison and nicknamed Duke, by the mid-1920s, the future John Wayne was a broke USC student who lost his football scholarship after an injury. He started taking the bus to MGM in Culver City to work odd jobs as a prop assistant, electrician's gopher, or background extra. And then an introduction to cowboy star Tom Mix got Duke onto the Fox lot, where he was soon hired as an assistant set dresser, which basically meant he carried heavy props from one end of the lot to the other. It was on the Fox lot that Duke first met and developed a quick rapport with director John Ford. John Ford is variously credited as Wayne's best friend, 
his mentor, and his discoverer. He'd go on to direct some of Wayne's best films, including The Quiet Man and The Searchers. But Wayne's first starring role came via Raoul Walsh, who spotted a shirtless Duke hauling props on the lot and decided he'd be perfect for the lead in a film called The Big Trail. Walsh liked the look of Duke's face and body, particularly his flat hips, which would look good in cowboy pants, and scheduled a screen test. When Duke failed the screen test, Walsh told him to go out onto Mulholland Drive and scream as loud as he could for as long as he could, to roughen up his voice a bit so that it matched his body. Duke did as he was told, and he got the part. Before shooting commenced, the studio decided neither Duke nor Marion were fitting names for a Western star, and Morrison was too long for the marquee. No one seems to remember exactly who picked John Wayne, but Wayne may have pushed for John in an homage to John Ford, who was already important in his life. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've only seen John Wayne's movies of the 1940s or later, you have no idea what he looked like in 1930. And there's really nothing I can say to you that will do him justice or convey the shock you'll feel when you see a picture. So you should maybe stop what you're doing right now and Google John Wayne, The Big Trail. I'll wait. I mean, right? Without any smile or frown lines, in a skin-tight cowboy suit unlaced halfway to his navel, he looks like a completely modern heartthrob, awaiting his big break in the next Nicholas Sparks weepy. There are a couple of headshots taken of Wayne around this time, in which dramatically lit and with his not-quite-close-cropped hair pomaded up, he kind of resembles a young Montgomery Clift, which should color your next viewing of Red River. In any case, America was not as excited about John Wayne in 1930 as you and I are looking at these stills. The Big Trail would become a huge, notorious flop, and it convinced Hollywood that there was no money to be made in westerns any longer. The genre was relegated to Poverty Row studios like Republic, where, for the most of the rest of the 1930s, Wayne churned out D-level westerns. He made somewhere between 60 and 80 films before 1939. He was 32 years old, and he still wasn't really famous. All throughout this period, Wayne stayed close with Ford, who eventually came across a story that he thought he could turn into a movie that would turn the westerns tide, and also turn Wayne into a real star. One weekend out on Ford's boat, the director tossed the actor a copy of the script for Stagecoach and told him to read it post-haste. 
The next night, Ford beckoned Wayne away from the card table and told him that he was looking for an actor to play the role of the Ringo Kid, a fugitive with a heart of gold, set on avenging the murder of his brother. Ford told Wayne he was looking for a good-looking guy who could be intimidating in a fight, but soft with a woman. He was looking for someone he could turn into a star. Wayne apparently all but shrugged, that ain't me, and went back to the card table. The next night, Ford came out with it. He told Duke that he wanted him to play the Ringo Kid. In fact, Ford would build Stagecoach around Wayne's presence, around his previously not-really-tapped ability to project both strength and tenderness, without saying much of anything at all. Peter Bogdanovich has called Stagecoach the first psychological Western, and I guess what he means by that is that, after an introduction in which a rifle-twirling Wayne is framed like a chanteuse making her entrance on a stage, the actor seems to spend a good deal of the movie thinking— and his subjectivity colors and balances the action of the film. Actress Claire Trevor, playing a heroic hooker, is the ostensible star of the film, but Wayne steals Stagecoach out from under her, partially by the way he looks at her. Stagecoach was an important film for a number of reasons. It did turn around the fates of the Western, as Ford intended. It also delivered a crucial early blow to the production code censorship system by proving that adult audiences could handle a film about people who do bad things, escape prison, say, or have sex for money, but are still sympathetic, fully realized humans. Producer Walter Wanger trumpeted his successful fight against the Hayes Code on Stagecoach as having parallels to the war getting underway in Europe. At a press conference, Wanger proclaimed that Hollywood movies could fight fascism by example, and that the American democratic way of life worth fighting for, quote, depends on the easy and prompt dissemination of ideas and opinions. In other words, censorship was basically equivalent to Nazism. Finally, Stagecoach turned John Wayne into a major star, and it established a persona that Wayne would more or less stick to for the rest of his career— Strong, not a big talker, duty-bound, not unemotional exactly, but driven by the correct emotions, compelled by honor to fight, and able to be intimate with women as long as there was an aspect of domestication to his courtship. Wayne was thrilled to ascend to the upper echelon of Hollywood stars, but he was smart enough to allow some aspects of his on-screen persona to extend off-screen. He thus projected himself as a self-deprecating man's man who had been accidentally swept into the slightly feminine business of show, who felt he didn't really belong there. He'd tell interviewers that he didn't really believe that he could really act, that he'd just gotten lucky to work with directors who knew how to pull the wool over the audience's eyes. Throughout his career, he'd give much credit to John Ford for making him a star and keeping him a star. But in fact, Wayne was seriously careerist. After he finished one film, he was always eager to move right on to the next. The next film was always going to be the most important of his career. So he made four films the year after Stagecoach. And the most significant may have been the one that changed the direction of his career and his personal life. In Tay Garnett's Seven Sinners, Wayne starred opposite Marlena Dietrich. Falling in love again never wanted to what am I 
to do, I can't help it. Although she had been a major star at the beginning of the decade, like Wayne, Dietrich had spent a few years in the 1930s in the professional weeds. But like Wayne, Marlena had made her comeback in 1939 in the Western Destry Rides Again. From the studio's point of view, the thing to do now with Dietrich, who was about to turn 40, seemed to be to cast her as a slightly over-the-hill woman of the evening and set her somewhat seedy exoticism against a hunk of unambiguously American virtue. It worked with Jimmy Stewart and Destry, and it worked again in Seven Sinners, a very loose retelling of the Madame Butterfly story, with Wayne cast as a naive Navy lieutenant who falls in love with Dietrich's singer-slash-gangster's mole and threatens to leave the service to be with her. If Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers worked well together because she gave him sex and he gave her class, Dietrich and Wayne worked together because she gave him sex, and he gave the German cabaret goddess an all-American stamp of approval. This opposites-attract routine worked off-screen, too. At this point, John Wayne had been married for about six years to his first wife, Josie, a Panamanian Catholic who had been involved with Wayne since she was a teenager and who gave birth to the couple's fourth child in 1939. Wayne complained to his friends that his marriage to the prim and proper socialite Josie was all but chaste. When his friends were like, uh, but what about all those kids? The Duke would respond, yeah, four times in ten years. So he had affairs, but he tried his best to keep them discreet. But when Wayne met Dietrich, his best intentions sort of went out the window. The first time Dietrich saw Wayne, she whispered to their Seven Sinners director, Tay Garnett, Daddy, buy me that. She soon thereafter invited Wayne to her dressing room. He nervously asked her for the time, and she lifted up her skirt to reveal that she was wearing a watch as a garter. It's very early, darling, she said. We have plenty of time. Everyone knew what was going on between the stars of Seven Sinners, including the FBI, which took note of the Wayne Dalliance in their substantive file on Dietrich's sex life. Also in the know was Wayne's wife, Josie, who had stayed with Duke through all of his other affairs because she didn't want to suffer the humiliations of a divorce within her high society social set or face the repercussions from her church. But she knew she couldn't compete with Marlena Dietrich, So in 1942, Wayne and Josie separated for good. But soon Dietrich was out of the picture, too. Duke and Marlena would make three films together in the span of a couple of years and would keep the party going in between co-starring assignments, too, at least for a little while. When Wayne was filming The Shepherd of the Hills in Big Bear up in the San Bernardino Mountains, Dietrich took her own cabin in nearby Lake Arrowhead. One morning, Duke didn't show up for his call time, and the wife of one of his co-stars, on a hunch that he'd overslept with Dietrich, started driving toward Arrowhead to look for him. She found him walking up the highway, having crashed his station wagon on the icy road on the way back from his sleepover. They managed to hustle Wayne onto set and into costume, just in time for his first shot. All of the films Dietrich and Wayne made together were hugely successful, but their affair wasn't as consistent. 
By the shoot of their second on-screen pairing, The Spoilers, Marlena had already diverted her attention toward French actor Jean Gabin, and she finally kicked Wayne to the curb for good in 1942, before they filmed their third and final collaboration, a bit of romantic war propaganda called Pittsburgh. Before they broke it off, Marlena had introduced Duke to two people who had helped to define the rest of his working life. First was Agent Charles Feldman, who became a pioneer of packaging, or putting together projects with specific combinations of talent that were all his clients. Feldman took John Wayne on as a client in 1942, and for the first time in his career, he started making real money on movies. Marlena also introduced Duke to her business manager, Boo Roos, who was known to be a genius at preserving and enhancing the wealth of his clients, whether it be through savvy investments or shrewd divorce settlements. At the height of Duke's heartbroken despondency over Dietrich, Roos organized a jaunt to Mexico for Duke and some other boys, Ray Milland, Fred McMurray, it was there that John Wayne met Esperanza Bauer Diaz Sabalos, or Chata, a call girl who descended from a long line of professional companions to visiting Hollywood drunks. Different accounts describe Chata as statuesque or chubby, bad skinned and hirsute, but undeniably seductive. In any case, she was considered by pretty much everybody to be the ideal material for a weekend fling, but was absolutely nobody's idea of marriage material. Except for Dukes. Still reeling from the demise of his intensely sexual affair with Dietrich, Wayne threw himself full-on into a serious relationship with Chata. One night, drinking in Hollywood with Howard Hughes, Wayne got teary over his Mexican mistress— and Hughes suggested they fly to Mexico that night. When they got there, Wayne swept Chata off her feet and promised to find a way to bring her back to the States with him and make her a movie star. He actually followed through on this, getting Republic to send the girl to a minimal studio contract so that she could legally cross the border and be with Wayne, although she never worked a day on any movie. All of this was pretty appalling to most of Duke's friends, particularly John Ford's wife, Mary, who wrote a letter to her husband urging him to write to Duke and talk some sense into his head, which she made clear was not the source of Wayne's current decision-making. He has gone completely berserk, Mary Ford wrote, thinks he is the hottest bed in pictures and says he is madly in love and nothing else matters. It's a damn shame that with a war going on, he has to think about his lousy, stinking tail. John Ford dutifully rode to Duke, criticizing his choice in, quote, Mexican jumping beans, but it didn't work. Wayne wrote back that he'd heard quite enough from, quote, the local board of busybodies, i.e. Mary Ford. He and Chata moved into the Chateau Marmont together, and on January 17, 1946, three weeks after Wayne's divorce from Josie, he and Chata were married. Mary Ford was a matron of honor, but John Ford didn't even show up. Ford actually grumbled to Wayne at some point, Why'd you have to marry that whore? The 
The Ford-Wayne friendship had been complicated ever since John Ford had left Los Angeles to serve his country. John Ford was the first important guy in Hollywood to enlist, joining up three months before Pearl Harbor. Even before that, Ford had voluntarily spent quote-unquote fishing trips, making note of Japanese vessels in the Pacific. He took command over the Naval Volunteer Photographic Unit, in which he trained cameramen, sound guys, and editors to make films within war zones. And then he was inscripted into the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the World War II-era precursor to the CIA. Ford was wounded by shrapnel while filming the Battle of Midway, but he barely let it hold him back. The Ford family's growing impatience with John Wayne's love life had much to do with John's increasing loss of respect for Duke over his apparent reticence to enlist. There has been much speculation and accusations and explanations as to why John Wayne, who became synonymous with American military strength on screen during the war in films such as The Fighting Seabees and Back to Bataan, did not actually serve in the military during World War II. Even his lover Marlena Dietrich may have been turned off by Duke's avoidance of the war. She apparently tried to persuade the producers of The Spoilers, the second film they made together, to cast someone other than Wayne out of fear that John Wayne might not be signing up because he was actually a Nazi supporter. And she apparently wasn't the only one who harbored this paranoid suspicion. John Wayne was not a Nazi supporter. But aside from that, his reasons for not fighting are a little cloudy. Here's what we know. As a married father of four, in June of 1941, Duke was classified as 3A, which meant his status as sole provider to dependents exempted him from service, at least for the time being. But in 1943, all 3A deferments were canceled, and Duke was reclassified 2A, which meant that his draftability was deferred because he was engaged at home in doing work that served a valuable purpose in terms of propaganda. This was the kind of deferment that a man needed to apply for, and though Wayne didn't fill out the application himself, his studio did it for him and continued to file new deferments every six months on Wayne's behalf through the end of the war, by some accounts, he believed that he was performing a more valuable service at home than he could have abroad. I felt I could do more good going around on tours and things, Wayne told his son Dan. Most of the ones who were doing the fighting were 18-year-old kids, and I was America to them. They had taken their sweethearts to that Saturday matinee and held hands over a Wayne Western. Maybe it's true that Wayne would have been at risk of ruining the morale-boosting illusion by enlisting and serving alongside the kids who worshipped him. But it's also fair to assume that he understood what could happen if he was off movie screens for the duration of the war. Nobody knew how long the war was going to last. And for all John Wayne knew, if he were to join up, he might be out of commission for the better part of a decade. By the time he'd return, he'd be decidedly middle-aged and thus aged out of the really good and really lucrative roles. He hadn't made enough money as a young man to pretend like money didn't matter, especially considering his impending divorce. 
This sort of deferment was actually not that common for Hollywood stars. Henry Fonda, Robert Montgomery, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. all refused potential deferments. Many stars felt the way Gene Autry felt. The singing cowboy was about Wayne's age, and he also had kids, and they were signed to the same studio. Republic told Autry that they could get him a deferment, but he refused, saying that it would look bad for the movie industry and his own reputation if it looked like he had skirted service. It's perhaps this sort of concern for his rep, which was already at risk given the fact that he was simultaneously going through a divorce and seemed to be on the verge of marriage to a hooker, that drove John Wayne to at least make it look like he was trying to get into some branch of the service. In May 1942, Wayne wrote to John Ford directly, asking him if he could join the director's unit, but depending on what you read, Ford either didn't respond or got Wayne the message that the unit was full. In August 1943, Duke applied to the Office of Strategic Services, under whose auspices Ford was running the field photographic unit for the filming of documentaries and reconnaissance footage. Ford facilitated a meeting between Wayne and Wild Bill Donovan, head of the OSS, at which Wayne said he had three pictures to complete and then he would be ready to join up. This was a frequent refrain in Wayne's letters to Ford. Just let me get through the next picture, he'd write, and then I'll join you. There are two conflicting stories about what happened after Wayne finished those three films. His version of the story is that he got in touch with the person he was supposed to get in touch with, and they told him it was too late. In fact, they had tried to send him a letter earlier when they needed him, but apparently had gone to Josie, and she had neglected to forward the letter to the hotel room where Duke was living in sin with Chata. Conversely, it's also been reported that there was no letter, because Wild Bill Donovan was happy to have John Wayne stay in Hollywood. He didn't think Wayne was cut out for strategic service work. So Wayne made his contribution by embarking on a USO tour in December 1943, which brought him to Australia and the South Pacific. What happened on that tour is a matter of controversy, too. According to Scott Iman's account in his biography of Wayne, a childhood friend of Duke's just happened to be commanding a unit in New Britain in Papua New Guinea, and when Wayne's USO tour visited the region, Wayne connived to stay behind while the rest of the tour moved along so that he could spend a few days play-acting as an enlisted man. According to this version of the story, Wayne actually tagged along on a mission in an artillery spotting plane and dropped shells on a Japanese outpost. Iman quotes a soldier named Keith Honaker as observing that Wayne, quote, actually did off the screen what he did on the screen. But biographer Mark Elliott's book on Wayne tells a different story. Elliott claims that GIs were hostile to Hollywood stars who had evaded the draft, and that Wayne was actually booed on his USO tour, and that if he had ever had any intention of joining the service, after that humiliation, he didn't. Either way, after the war, John Wayne was widely considered to be ashamed of not having done enough. This may have been one reason why the Duke jumped at the chance to join the Motion Picture Alliance, the conservative, communist-hunting organization that we discussed in our Walt Disney episode a few weeks ago. 
Biographer Mark Elliott notes that no one could accuse a high-ranking member of the MPA of being friendly to Nazis, implying that this political association and the destructive activism it later led to might have been self-serving opportunism as much as anything else. Maybe that was the case, but there was also a real tide that Wayne was swept up in. Whatever willingness to put aside personal differences that had allowed Hollywood's left and right to work together on wartime efforts like the Hollywood Canteen had pretty much fallen apart by March 1944, when David O. Selznick outed screenwriter, MPA member, and friend of Wayne, James Kevin McGinnis, as, quote, the biggest anti-Semite in Hollywood. When FDR died in April 1945, much national support for his leftist policies died with him. That same month, the MPA issued their first newsletter, in which they announced that their goal was to inform the public of the communist influence in their company town. In other words, name names. By the end of 1945, the war was over and post-war disillusion was starting to set in, which created a fertile climate for the MPA's anti-Soviet, anti-communist China rhetoric. It did not create a fertile climate for the December 1945 release of They Were Expendable, a John Ford film about PT boats in the South Pacific, starring John Wayne, Donna Reed, and Robert Montgomery, which was first conceived in May 1942, but took forever to actually get to the screen, in part because Ford and Montgomery were pretty busy with real-life combat duties. Ford hadn't even wanted Wayne for the movie, by this point, Ford was pretty grossed out by what he felt was Duke's cowardice in avoiding combat. But the first choice for the role, Robert Taylor, foiled Ford's plans by joining the Air Force. They Were Expendable is, at times, an almost documentary-like depiction of the day-to-day -day life of enlisted men on remote islands, waiting for orders and or for the war to come to them. Montgomery stars as Brickley, a captain who is desperately trying to convince his superiors that PT boats have a place in battle, and not just as messenger or patrol vehicles. Wayne plays Rusty Ryan, Brickley's second-in-command, who is impatient to see some substantive action, but is waylaid by illness and then falls in love with a nurse played by Donna Reed. For much of the film, as critic James Agee put it, all you have to watch is men getting on or getting off PT boats and other men watching them do so. But as A.G. also noted, said footage is both realistic and beautiful. Ford's annoyance over the ways in which Wayne had elided military service was made worse by the fact that the actor had become so successful and beloved, not to mention rich, playing military men in movies. Stuck working with a protege who he felt had disgraced himself, Ford did not spare Wayne his criticism. Montgomery had basically shown up on set straight out of combat and found it to be a rough transition. He felt like he had forgotten how to act. Ford was entirely sympathetic and let Montgomery take a couple of days to adjust and feel comfortable, reducing his dialogue down to a minimum. By contrast, Ford gave Wayne absolutely no leeway. For instance, one day, the director kept asking for retakes of a simple shot in which Montgomery and Wayne were saluting an admiral. The actors were given no new direction in between takes, and at one point, Wayne muttered, What was wrong with it? 
Ford told him, yelling at him specifically in front of the entire cast and crew, Duke, can't you manage a salute that at least looks like you've been in the service? Wayne stormed off the set and didn't return that day. Montgomery demanded that Ford apologize. By one report, at this point, Ford burst into tears and went and found Wayne and made up. Another report says it was Wayne who fell victim to the waterworks. At the end of the first day, when he was the only principal at the table read who showed up not in uniform. Whoever cried when, They Were Expendable is a remarkable film for its lack of emotional flourish, for its sober depictions of the workaday life of warriors who want to fulfill their duties almost as desperately as they want to return home safely and go back to their old lives as though nothing had changed. It's entirely unglamorous and less rousing than sad. And it was pretty much ignored by a movie going public that was simply burnt out on the war. Hollywood seemed to be burnt out that year, too. It was the first since Pearl Harbor that none of the Academy's Best Picture nominees were related to war, unless you count anchors away. But the following year, the Oscars were dominated by the best years of our lives. William Wyler's drama about veterans' struggles to adjust to post-war home life. John Wayne hated the best years of our lives. The MPA declared this hit best picture-winning film to be a dangerous vehicle for left-wing propaganda, and Wayne felt certain that the fact that they were expendable had failed and the best years of our lives had succeeded was a sure-fire sign of the growing pinko threat. It was a threat that he felt personally determined to vanquish. His efforts to do so, in association with the MPA, are a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes on our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like this show, please tell your friends or strangers any way you can. You can follow us and tweet to us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can also follow Karina at Karina Longworth. You can rate, review us, and subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. We'll be back next week with the final episode for now in our Star Wars series. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Let's call it a day Let us say It was just meant to be A sweet memory Love won't stay Let's call it a day